Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. For today's episode, we're bringing you a recording of our recent briefing with Dr. Nimrod Novik, who is Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow, on the challenges to emerging relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. That program was moderated by our board chair, Susie Gelman. Enjoy the recording and stay tuned for new installments of Israel Policy Pod. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. I hope you have enjoyed the last few weeks of summer. Israel Policy Forum is committed to advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to ensure Israel's security and its Jewish and democratic future. In recent years, we have been raising the alarm on threats posed to that mission by West Bank annexation. Even though annexation has been nominally suspended under a pending historic agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, we are not dropping our guard. We must remain vigilant and aware of the ways in which annexation has become deeply embedded in the Israeli political mainstream and ways in which de facto creeping annexation continues to proceed. To that end, we will continue our work in educating our three core audiences, American policymakers in Washington, members and leaders of the American Jewish community, and emerging leaders of the next generation. Although we took a brief hiatus from our weekly webinar series for the final few weeks of summer, Israel Policy Forum has continued to ramp up its activity. Last month, our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, received over 18,000 listens, our record for all of 2020. Recent episodes have included conversations with experts like Ksenia Svetlova, covering Israel-UAE normalization, and Dr. Sarah Yael Hirschhorn, examining the settlement community's response to developments with the UAE. You can listen to these programs on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other major podcasting platforms. IPF Atid, our Young Professionals community, will soon announce the next cohort of Charles Bronfman conveners, a group of highly talented young leaders, ages 22 to 39, who receive intensive training on issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to make them better advocates for a viable two-state solution. Despite the ongoing public health crisis, we are proud to continue this initiative as a virtual program in 2020 to 2021. Finally, Israel Policy Forum continues to provide resources on Capitol Hill through virtual engagement. I encourage you to explore our policy resources yourself, including our compilation of congressional reactions to West Bank annexation, which is available on our website at ipf.li forward slash Congress. As we approach the High Holy Days later this month and the presidential election in November, you will undoubtedly hear from many people asking for your support, and I'm certainly cognizant of that. But we cannot underscore enough the importance of your support today. Our growth in the past year alone has been unprecedented and has taken place against all odds, despite political conditions in Washington, Jerusalem, and Ramallah, 
despite the pandemic, despite the economic crisis. And it is all a credit to your generosity. To all of our supporters on this call, thank you. If you view Israel Policy Forum as a vital resource and a voice in the American Jewish community and in Washington, and have not already done so, then I encourage you to make a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now to today's program. Earlier this month, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States issued a joint declaration announcing the normalization of Israel-UAE ties in exchange for the suspension of West Bank annexation plans. Just yesterday, Israeli and American delegations touched down in Abu Dhabi on the first El Al flight to land in the UAE. While the pending agreement is no doubt a historic achievement, there have nevertheless been bumps in the road and more potential challenges await. To help us break down these unresolved issues, we are fortunate indeed to be joined by Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow, Nimrod Novik. Nimrod served as a foreign policy advisor to former Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, a veteran of track two diplomacy. He's a senior associate at the Economic Cooperation Foundation and a member of the steering committee of Commanders for Israel Security. Nimrod, thank you for joining us. So I'm thank just going to start me. off with Toda. Um, Nimrod, you recently wrote for Israel Policy Forum's Israel Policy Exchange blog about how the Israel-Egypt agreement in the 1970s was nearly brought down over competing visions of the text in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. Do you think there is a lesson from this episode in history for Israelis and Emiratis as they proceed with normalization? Uh, yes. Um, you know, traditionally, one can, uh, one can look at, at mediators or negotiators um, in, in largely two categories. There are probably other variations, but in terms of, of, of your question, um, two categories. Uh, there is the lawyer uh, who serves his client and sticks with his brief and doesn't move left or right or anything, um, which is an impediment in the early stage of the stages of negotiations before things are really moving. When you got to bring the parties uh, to the table you got to have somebody who is more creative, who uh, is willing to stretch the envelope, uh, to exceed the mandate of his boss. Um, we had such negotiators in Shlomo Ben-Ami uh, and in Yossi Bailin and, 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 and in others. No one was more creative uh, in, in this regard than, than Henry Kissinger, uh, who didn't hesitate to promise certain things to one party, slightly different to the other, and eventually bring them to the point that he wanted them, uh, where he wanted them to, uh, to get. Um, that is very useful uh, in early stages. When the time comes to draft an agreement, there is no room for ambiguities, lest you wake up the morning after. And you know, um, we may not have such a tense situation between ourselves and the UAE uh, because we never fought a war with them, and it's not like Egypt. Uh, where there was a residue of substantial mistrust uh, post-signature, and all you need is for either of the two parties uh, to start reinterpreting what was what was drafted uh, uh, to to cause crisis and accusation of bad faith. 
And what we've seen with the, and, and the same goes, even though there is no resi re residue of hostility from, from wars past uh, with the UAE, nonetheless, this is a very sensitive situation. The UAE took a very important step, uh, breaking a certain precedent and consensus uh, in moving forward on this. And the last thing that we as Israelis or they or the US need is that the morning after the agreement, uh, somebody will behave in a way that does not correspond to the expectations of the other two parties. And, and, and we had four such issues. Some of them are easy to resolve. Uh, others are much more difficult. Um, one of the more difficult ones, uh, which apparently is going to be resolved, uh, is already in, 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 in public, in the public domain. And that is the issue of did Israel or did it not uh, green light or yellow lighted uh, the supply of uh, F-35 stealth aircraft, as well as other uh, 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 weapon systems, very sophisticated ones, uh, that uh, Israel is the only country that has them, has access to them uh, in the relevant Israeli defense theater. Uh, and here, for the first time, the Emiratis are, are uh, apparently uh, going to get them. Um, so, um, days after the joint statement was issued, uh, the Prime Minister denied and repeatedly denied and repeatedly denied uh, that there was any Israeli consent to such a thing, that this thing is not on the agenda to begin with, uh, never discussed. Uh, and, and now we know, and, and he, uh, during the visit of uh, Jared Kushner over here on the way to uh, the UAE, uh, to Abu Dhabi, and both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Defense um, um, basically stated that uh, the issue is on the agenda and will be discussed between uh, Israel and the United States. Um, and that was the reason that the uh, uh, defense uh, delegation that was supposed to travel with the entire delegation yesterday, it was postponed by a couple of weeks to allow Israeli, American, and probably UAE deliberations over the, the F-35. So that was one very sticky issue, can be resolved. Uh, there are precedents. Uh, there was times that we were the only ones with F-16s in the region and with F-15s in the region. Uh, and then the Saudis wanted these and the Egyptians and the Iraqis wanted the other. Uh, and Israel sat down with the United States and agreed on downgrading certain systems, subsystems on those, uh, 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 on those very advanced platforms, uh, so that Israel's uh, qual qualitative uh, um, uh, military edge is, is maintained. Apparently, I'm no expert on aircraft, but apparently this can be done with the F-35 as well. So that's one sticky issue that already exploded in public and demonstrate the risks of creating wrong impressions and then making uh, contradictory statements. Uh, the other three that I noted uh, was one is very easy to resolve and I think maybe already have been, but in, in, since the, the joint statement, each of the three parties spoke differently of what, about what are we talking about. Uh, the prime minister said it's a peace treaty. Uh, uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, said it's a roadmap to normalization, uh, and others in the UAE called it a normalization agreement. So is it a peace treaty? Is it a normalization agreement? Is it just a roadmap to normalization? I assume 
that they will find the right uh, language because this is just describing the, the document to be signed. Uh, uh, the two more sticking issues are one, um, we, we have indications that when uh, Jared Kushner, uh, when he spoke about this in public for the first time, for the second time, and, and since, uh, has made a point uh, that uh, there is a relationship between what, happen what happens between the UAE and Israel and the Trump vision. Uh, his first statement was that, uh, that, um, uh, that his father-in-law, President Trump, has for the first time in history uh, got the Israeli government uh, to accept a two-state solution and a map. Now, there is no such thing. I mean, the government of Israel has not accepted two-state solution and a map. The Knesset has not done so. Uh, the prime minister might have, but we don't know, and he denies it. Uh, if they insist on injecting the Trump vision in one way or another into the document, uh, the prime minister will have a problem at home, uh, acknowledging that he, on behalf of Israel, without a mandate for it from his cabinet or Knesset, agreed to a two-state solution and a map. Uh, and, you know, a map of Palestine is a map of Israel. Um, and to agree to something like this without consulting uh, the coalition, the public, uh, that, that's quite... Uh, uh, an interesting uh, precedent. Uh, and the last one uh, is the one that uh, uh, Israel Policy Forum and commanders have been fighting for a long time to prevent, and that's annexation. Uh, here, uh, the Emiratis, when they explain uh, why they went for this deal, uh, they attributed much of it to the fact that they got Israel uh, to get uh, annexation off the table. And here, too, the three parties are talking three languages. Uh, President Trump said we got it off the table. Um, the prime minister said we suspended it. Uh, and the Emiratis used both. Uh, in his article to Yediot Achronot, uh, the ambassador to uh, Washington, Yusuf el Otaybe, uh, wrote, uh, we shut the door on it, and it has been suspended. Uh, since then, we have learned that, indeed, um, uh, the crown prince insists on defining time-wise the suspension. The last thing he needs is that six months or so after the signing ceremony and when normalization starts blooming, uh, Israel goes back to, to annexation. So uh, there is a reason for uh, insisting on defining how long it will be. It's going to be very difficult for the prime minister to sign on to four years, five years, three years, very difficult. Will they solve it by side letters? Maybe. Will the side letters be secret? Maybe. Uh, will this secret uh, not be uh, leaked? Hardly likely. So it is very, very important that before they go to Washington for this uh, ceremony, uh, they iron out all of, the, all of these things. They don't paper over them so that the morning after, we don't start the relationship with the first Arab country in 26 years uh, with accusation of bad faith. Bad faith. Uh, there's a lot more to unpack here, Nimrod, but that was a great start. Um, and by the way, I just want to ask also, because Benny Gantz is as you know, defense minister, and in recent days, 
he suggested after a meeting with Jared Kushner that the U.S. and Israel would examine how to preserve Israel's qualitative military edge over its neighbors. You talked about this a little bit, but I just want to ask further, while, while Gantz didn't mention the F-35 explicitly, do you think this signals a willingness to compromise on the Israeli position on this issue? And where's the rest even of the defense? By the way, meanwhile, where's the rest of the defense establishment on this? Exactly. Um, well, with your permission, I want to do something that I failed to do at the outset. Um, I dive directly into the problems. Uh, but I first and foremost want to say that this is very exciting. This is great news. Uh, this is something uh, that even though it drowns in the uh, trauma of the COVID-19 pandemic in the country uh, with the first of the year today, and people are afraid what they're going back to school will do. Uh, are we going to have another round and so on? So it did overshadow uh, the excitement, but at least personally, and, and I'm sure I'm not uh, in a minority, uh, this is a very exciting development with potential uh, positive ramifications, uh, even uh, to those who hate it and uh, are angry about it, which is the Palestinians. Even there, there might be room uh, to translate it into something constructive. But to your question, yes, um, um, there, there, there is, there is a, uh, the defense establishment uh, uh, works on the assumption that it is an, a down deal. Uh, and the question now is, uh, in, I'm talking about the F-35s. Uh, it's a done deal. And the question is, how do we downgrade some of its systems so as to provide Israel an edge, uh, even if that aircraft shows up in the theater. Um, and, and it's not just downgrading the, the, the subsystems, it may be also providing Israel with all kinds of, shall we call it, antidotes, uh, systems that can allow Israel to overcome some of the systems of the F-35. Uh, so there's going to be very serious, technically detailed uh, discussions that I have no uh, way of, of, of even understanding. But there's one more thing, uh, which, is, which is quite interesting. Um, it, 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 was, it was no secret that um, uh, a while ago uh, there was a major uh, multi-air force uh, training exercise in Greece. Uh, and a, an Emirati squadron was operating there alongside an Israeli squadron. And that was long before anybody was talking about this breakthrough. Um, I'm, I'm mentioning this because I heard things from the defense uh, for senior officials in, in Israel that said that uh, they don't rule out the possibility that in the not too distant future, uh, Israelis and Emiratis are going to train together uh, in Abu Dhabi. Wow. Um, Nimrod, let's talk a little bit more about West Bank annexation. Uh, as you mentioned, the three parties are talking about this differently. Uh, BB said it's suspended, as you mentioned. The Emiratis and the Trump administration seem to think annexation's off the table. Uh, there are disputing statements by the foreign minister, Gabi Ashkenazi, who has claimed that 
Israel had traded annexation for normalization. So first of all, do you think that Israel and the UAE can get on the same page about this? I, I don't know. I, I'm sure that there's, there's going to be tremendous U.S. pressure uh, to bring them there. Um, we heard a, a rumor that I cannot verify um, of an American position that says uh, no annexation for the four year that the Trump plan um, um, provided the Palestinians with within which to come to the table. So if we are now something like eight months since the January uh, unveiling of the plan, we're talking about another three years and several months of no annexation whatsoever. Um, we heard that this is the position of the White House. Um, we heard other variations of it. Um, but uh, my guess is that it's going to be more difficult to agree on the form of agreeing than on the duration. I don't think that Netanyahu has a problem if it's three, four, or five years. I think he has a problem if he has to make it public. Um, how does the UAE feel? Oh, I want to remind our audience that we do have some questions, but I encourage uh, those of you who have not yet asked a question, I will get to them shortly. So please go ahead and type in your question in the Q&A box uh, because we have time for several questions. Um, how does the UAE feel about the Trump administration's peace to prosperity plan now? Uh, that plan envisioned Israel annexing up to 30% of the West Bank, as you know, Nimrod, while the UAE's ambassador Yusuf Al-Taiba attended the unveiling of the plan's political component back in January at the White House. Abu Dhabi later claimed it hadn't been properly briefed on its contents. So where does this all stand now? Um, yeah, I mean, um, they, they were polite enough not to say that they've been tricked into it, into attending, uh, by uh, expecting something quite different uh, to be uh, presented. Um, They are very careful uh, not to offend the White House. So they are not coming out uh, in public uh, against elements of the plan. And they try to accentuate the positive. Uh, the plan talks about a two-state solution. The plan talks about the Palestinian capital. The plan talks about territorial swap. Um, those principles uh, go hand in hand with our peace initiative. And we are committed to our peace initiative. Um, we are finding now uh, them as others. Um, you know, the most surprising maybe uh, outcome, um, short-term outcome. We're going to see a lot more outcomes in the future, which we don't know which way it'll go. But short-term, the most surprising is the rebirth of the Arab peace initiative, uh, because suddenly all those Arab countries who are not joining. Uh, the circle of normalization, at least not yet, um, keep uh, um, reminding everybody that they are committed uh, to the Arab Peace Initiative. Uh, the Trump plan is not uh, in compliance with the, with the Arab Peace Initiative, by, not by a long shot. Um, so everybody finds its own, every side finds its own language 
uh, not to offend the, the, the White House, but to reiterate uh, the traditional uh, uh, position uh, of the Arab consensus, which is the Arab Peace Initiative, and the Emiratis are no different. Nimal, what is the current timeline for normalization as the different parties perceive it? Um, they're talking about moving very fast. Everybody is talking about moving very fast. They already signed one. Uh, they intend to sign many more. Um, you see, um, the irony is that when, when we were negotiating with Egypt, uh, uh, discussing the uh, 24 normalization annexes to the peace treaty took a, long, a lot longer than the peace treaty itself. That was not short, but took a lot longer because Egypt didn't want it. And it was imposed on it by the Israeli side. So each one, each of the 24 uh, was with reservations and haggling and talking and back and forth. And so in this case, there is no border to be determined. There are no security arrangements to be determined. There's um, embassy and normalization. Uh, and it seems that the two sides are determined to move very, very fast with both. Um, we heard also uh, that contrary to the preference of the White House, um, the Emiratis would like to have the ceremony as soon as possible in Washington uh, and get it over with and not wait until close to uh, November, uh, but, but earlier. Um, they, they are talking about an embassy in Tel Aviv very soon, um, but uh, uh, they signed already things that, again, I'm, I'm no expert on this business, but uh, how to uh, uh, allow Israeli uh, uh, credit cards to be accepted in, uh, in uh, Emirati uh, shops. Um, you know, everybody is, is, is focusing on the shopping part of this uh, normalization deal, tourism and shopping. Uh, and I, I think it will move fast. So I'm going to turn to some, we have a bunch of questions from our audience. So I'm going to try to get to as many as possible because we have great questions. Elaine Cohn asks, how are the Palestinians reacting to this agreement? And what will they need to do in order not to be further marginalized? And I'd like to tack onto that question because this would seem to be a victory for outside in uh, imposition as opposed to directly uh, negotiating with the Palestinians. And you might want to comment on that as well. Yes, very, very important. Uh, hi, Elaine. Good to hear from you. Um, the, the Palestinian uh, reaction was, uh, on the face of it, universally negative. Um, the Palestinians felt uh, that uh, they have lost a very important card uh, in their negotiations with the Israelis. Um, the, the Palestinians have very little to offer Israeli negotiations. Uh, the, the, the one thing we need from them is security. Uh, we're not looking for normalization. We're not looking for Palestinian investment in Israel. I mean, none of that. We're security. Uh, but as long as they had the Arab world card, normalization card in their pocket, they felt that they had something that can tempt Israelis 
uh, to move forward. And here, the Emiratis basically sent them a message, uh, we've had enough, we're moving forward without you. We waited for you long, long enough. Uh, so the universal formal position was anger, disappointment, despair even. Uh, under the, uh, when, when you go a little deeper into various circles, uh, there's, there's different talk. Uh, there are people there uh, who say, okay, it's bad and we don't like it and we'd rather it not happened. Uh, but instead of just uh, uh, going into the bunker and, and bitching about it, let's see how we can do something constructive out of it. How can we engage the Emiratis uh, to join, join the Egyptians and, uh, and the Jordanians? Uh, maybe in replacing the Qataris in uh, Gaza. Uh, so it will not be so much the Muslim brothers rather than uh, start moving in a different direction. Maybe direct investments compensate us by direct investments in Palestine in territories. Um, there are those who are beginning to think uh, more constructively. But as you know, uh, all politics is personal and Palestinian politics is no exception. And because Abu, uh, Abu Dhabi and the UAE uh, is host to a gentleman by the name of Mohammed Dahlan, uh, who Abu Mazen considered a vicious enemy, uh, and who is one of the contenders for the succession uh, in, in, in the Palestinian Authority and the, and, and the PLO. Um, there, there is this personal layer on top of everything else that makes it impossible. I mean, the, Palestin the, the Palestinians have not had an ambas ambassador in the UAE since 2014 because of the Dahlan story. I mean, it, it is outrageous. Um, um, it's a tragedy. Um, so will they get their act together? Uh, and will they offer a, a, an idea uh, or, or coordinate with others, with the Arab Quartet, with the European donor community, uh, to, to, to try and generate something constructive out of this? I don't know. But I'm sure that there are many who are working on this. As to the question of whether uh, the UAE dumped the Palestinians in, in going directly to Israel, uh, and even the veto issue, uh, it depends when, you know, where you sit is where you stand. Uh, the Palestinians did not have a veto when Egypt decided to make a deal with Israel. Uh, the Palestinians did not have a veto when Jordan decided to make a deal with Israel, and the Palestinians did not have a veto when the Emiratis finally decided to do the same. Uh, but, but the very fact that the Emiratis accentuate that they got the uh, annexation of the table, that's a major deliverable for the Palestinians. So it's not that the UAE ignores the Palestinians. It got something important for them. Will they engage further and use their new access to Jerusalem and to Tel Aviv in order to become a more active go-between Nobody knows. Um, we, we discuss it with some of them uh, over the past few days, and we continue next week. And the, the, the main reaction of uh, Emirati experts is that their leadership has never considered the details of what's going on in Gaza and the West Bank. They had a broad strategy, which is the Arab Peace Initiative. But under that, the layer of practical steps on the ground was never their bread and butter. Uh, they believe that now may be the time that they will 
devote some energy and attention to it, and therefore might agree to engage more than they had uh, they, they have thus far. We have a lot of questions about other Sunni states. Uh, Rob Festenstein about Saudi Arabia wants to know, do you ever see normalization with Saudi Arabia? There's been speculation for years of quiet diplomacy taking place behind the scenes. Of course, the Saudis were the proponents of the Arab Peace Initiative back in 2002. I understand that the Saudis and the Emiratis don't exactly get along. But at the end of the day, Nimal, do you see, maybe I'm wrong about that. If I am, I'm wrong. Um, do you see this? Uh, and of course, there's been talk about other Gulf states and Morocco, so Morocco, which is not a Gulf state, but Morocco, Bahrain, Sudan, uh, other Gulf states following suit. And Nimal, do we expect to see more arms deals as a result? And where are the Saudis, do you think, right now in all this? Um, and of course, Jared's good friends with the Crown Prince, MBS. I will start with your last point because I, th I find it very important. Uh, are we talking about more arms deals? Um, as you know all too well, um, whenever we made a major deal, the United States provided Israel with upgrades of security. Huge packages after the peace with Egypt, additional uh, package, uh, not as dramatic, of course, with after Jordan, including in the context of Oslo. Every time, and this time, the only ones who are talking about arms are not the Israelis, but the other party, the, the Emiratis. In a sense, it's a precedent, uh, but there is logic to this precedent. Israel is taking no risks in striking a deal with the United Arab Emirates. They do. Uh, they are very close to uh, Iran. Uh, they have other elements, destabilizing elements in the region uh, that, they, that they are fighting with. Uh, and, and the move um, certainly aggravates their concerns with Iranian reaction. And the Iranians already demonstrated uh, that they don't hesitate to use weapons directly uh, into uh, into oil inf installations and so on across the Gulf. Um, so um, one has to take into account the possibility that if others are coming, others may enjoy, not maybe as dramatic, but uh, not maybe as sexy weapon systems like F-35s, uh, but uh, but uh, it cannot be ruled out, and that's a very serious concern uh, for the Israeli defense establishment. Uh, you know, while they consider it a done deal with the Emiratis, um, they always felt that if the Emiratis get it, the Saudis and Egyptians will ask for it as well. Who's next? Is are the Saudis next or not? From all indications, uh, the Saudis are not. Um, from all indications, and again, um, I cannot vouch for the for, for the for this information, but that's what we have. I'll give you the best that we have. Uh, the Saudis didn't know that the Emiratis are going for it. It was, as a matter of fact, it was part of the Emirati strategy to demonstrate to the Trump administration and potentially to a Biden administration uh, that they are not Saudi Arabia. Uh, 
they know that the Saudis have uh, very serious problems in Washington, uh, in Congress for sure, and uh, they, are, they are trying to distance themselves from them and demonstrate independence. They are still on the same side when it comes to um, Qatar and Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, but on this issue, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed has, has certainly was out to demonstrate independence, just as he did when he went out of Yemen uh, about a year ago and left the Saudis to fight on their own. So it is part of, of uh, it's a manifestation of a broader strategy of demonstrating his independence and maybe becoming a more favorite player as far as Washington is concerned uh, in the region. As to the other countries, I have no idea. I, I, I hear the same rumor that everybody else does. Uh, the, the Sudanese want to get off the uh, U.S. terrorist list, and I'm not sure that the U.S. is, is, is ready uh, to do it. I don't know. Um, each country, each, each, each of these countries has a, has a pet project. I mean, uh, the Moroccans would like a recognition of their rule over the Western Sahara. Each one has his own pet project for normalizing with Israel. What is the bonus? Um, I would hope that uh, some of them, if they do go there, will insist on a bonus in the Palestinian context. But right now, they are really each uh, to its own uh, interests. Leon Horowitz asked, I think, a, a, an important question related to uh, Arab Sunni leadership. He says, it must be noted that whatever policy the Arab Sunni leadership would like to advance on, they are still limited in what they can do by their populations who in the va their vast majority are more aligned to and sympathetic with the aspirations of the Palestinians. What's your response to that? I mean, okay. I guess we're talking about the Arab street versus the leadership. Exactly. Um, I believe that we, we, we live in, in, a, in a changing environment in that regard. Uh, I think that uh, the younger generation in the Arab world uh, is less um, committed uh, to the Palestinian cause, uh, is far more committed to the conveniences of life at home, to the difficulties of life at home. Uh, you know, the, 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 the most striking, I, I'll put it this way, uh, it seems to, to have been little change, if any, when it comes to Jordan. Jordan is next door, Jordan is worried, Annexation seemed to Jordan the beginning of the end of the Hashemite kingdom as we know it. And Jordan is far more, uh, um, uh, expresses far more uh, concern for the Palestinians. And that goes uh, in the street just as much as in the leadership. When you go to Egypt, that's the second layer. And in Egypt, we have seen a change, a very uh, important change. Um, uh, uh, Israel is no longer the enemy. Um, we, we owe some uh, a bouquet of flowers for this to, the, uh, uh, to Hamas. And given the fact that Hamas uh, is, is the local branch of the Muslim Brothers, and given the experience of Egyptians with the Muslim Brother rule for one year, um, uh, from which they emerged through a coup, uh, but the general population uh, feels that the Muslim Brotherhood um, was out to undermine everything that is good in Egypt, and they consider Hamas an enemy, suddenly Israel is no longer such a bunch of bad guys. 
Um, and, 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 and I already see articles in the Egyptian press from all kinds of intellectuals already regretting uh, that they were not first to normalize. And here the other guys who never fought, who never paid for it, are now going to reap all the benefits. And we are staying behind and we are stuck. We're beginning to see this kind of fair language. Uh, the flip side of it, Egypt is very worried of losing its centrality. Um, Egypt wanted always to be the liaison between Israel and the Arab world. The translator, the mediator, the go-between, the go-to guy, if Israel wants Arabs or Arabs want Israel. And suddenly they are losing their centrality, um, which is a, 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 an issue to, to consider. In the, in the Arab world, beyond the immediate states, what used to be the confrontation states in history, in the Arab world beyond that, I think that the change is, is, is much more comprehensive. Um, and uh, the reaction of the street in, 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 in Abu Dhabi, you do find uh, hostile expressions, but overwhelmingly supportive, uh, and even in Saudi Arabia. Um, the, the, the numbers that, that tuned in to uh, watch the uh, live coverage uh, is, is very, very substantial. And I think that we are in the middle of a changing region. Let's hope it's changing. Good. Um, we have a question I'm from Robert. Ways. Yeah, okay. We have a question from Robert Elman, an Israel Policy Forum board member who wants to know what impact has the UAE deal had upon domestic Israeli politics and on PM Netanyahu's standing in particular? Um, I, I think we should wait a few days, maybe a couple of weeks before I can say something um, that is based uh, on data, but intuitively, I would say that each side of the Israeli divide uh, found reasons to reinforce its predisposition. Uh, the big beasts will say, the king brought us a historic breakthrough. And the anti-Bibi will say, um, instead of uh, flying to the Emirates, uh, why don't you take care of the school system in a uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic? Um, so I, 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 I doubt that it will make a difference and more than reinforce predispositions, the hostiles and the supporters. Uh, we have some questions uh, as this relates to our upcoming elections, so I'm going to combine them. Uh, Zach Naren asks, what does normalization between Israel and the UAE look like with a potential Biden administration? Are motivations from the UAE primarily aimed at Trump, or are there deeper interests? And Mark Rosenberg asks, how will the UAE react if Joe Biden is elected president on November 3rd? Um, well, uh, um, as I mentioned earlier, what we heard from the Emiratis is that strategy was aimed at both. And they see a bonus, uh, whoever is reelected, uh, whoever is elected. Uh, that is to say, they gave Trump uh, a major accomplishment on the eve of elections. And in their words, they spared Biden the headache of dealing with Israeli annexation. 
he will not have, as soon as he comes into office, he will not have to start fighting with Bibi uh, over reversing, de-recognizing, or whatever it is that people were suggesting that he might do uh, in order to undo the damage uh, of annexation. So the Emiratis um, looked at it as a win-win. Uh, whoever wins should uh, uh, is, is owes us one. Uh, on, 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 in that in that regard, um, our expectations uh, and their expectations. I think we are all fairly sober um, in what we hear uh, from people like you, Susie, and others who know a lot more about what's going on in the in the Biden uh, circle, uh, and that is uh, a new president is not going to put the Israeli-Palestinian issue at the top of his agenda when he has to repair the country uh, from all those ills that he will be inheriting. Another politically related question comes from Bonnie Squires. You may know her name while she asked earlier if you were in Philadelphia years ago, so she knows of you at least. Um, Bonnie asks, how can we apply this plan without giving Trump another talking point for his reelection? That's more of a domestic American question, I suppose, but feel free to give us your opinion. First of all, you know, you bring back wonderful memories of my wife and me at the University of Pennsylvania, both getting our PhDs at the same university in the same wonderful city, city of brotherly love. Um, yeah, we had great time in Philadelphia. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna duck this one. <laughs> Okay. I don't want to get into American politics. Okay, fair enough. Um, Dr. Alexander Longarov says, Benjamin Netanyahu tweeted that yesterday's flight was an example of the peace for peace process. Is it correct to understand from that that land for peace is off the table and that the Israeli government still has formal eyes on the territories? Um, well, when you say Israeli government... Uh, who are we talking about? You know, uh, we have a situation where uh, we have two uh, political views in the, in the government uh, who don't cannot stand each other and don't agree with each other on any on virtually anything. Um, I, I would say this: Netanyahu is certainly trying to market this as the uh, accomplishment of his long vision. Uh, that we don't need to uh, yield the territory in order to get peace agreements. And if we're strong enough, the Arabs are going to come calling. Um, and like, like my answer uh, uh, on uh, how will it affect the Israeli electorate is my answer here. Um, those who share his worldview say, great, you know, now it's peace for peace. And those who do not say, come on, seriously? You gave up annexation and you say that there's no territorial element there is. You gave up 30% of the West Bank for now. And you say that it's not territory for peace. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a hard sell. Um, but I guess the bottom line is it almost doesn't matter. At, at the bottom line, the, not the Emiratis and not the Trump administration are stuck in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
it is us. And whether the Emiratis force us to yield more for the Palestinians or not, if the Saudis come later and also ask for something, that's not the story. The fight here inside Israel is not on Emiratis, yes or no. It is how we're going to change uh, course from the inevitable slide towards the one state, to the one state reality, toward the disaster of a one state reality, or are we going to start reversing the trend? And even though a two state solution may not be available tomorrow morning, start a careful, gradual, secure process of sliding in the opposite direction. And uh, neither the Emiratis nor anyone else who will come along is going to spare us the need to look ourselves in the mirror and make a national decision. We have some more questions about uh, settlements and how that relates to annexation. So uh, Roy Eisenberg asks, how is Netanyahu going to get the details right on an agreement that hinges on stopping annexation when even today, Health Minister Edelstein said the accord must not come at the expense of sovereignty in Judea and Samaria. Um, well, in Israel, ministers uh, shoot their mouths, uh, you know, for, for primary purposes on a regular basis. And the more extreme you are, the more appealing to your party uh, base. Um, so I, I wouldn't take that as serious. I think there's something else that is, is really serious and, and dangerous. And that is uh, that the, um, the settler movement, the Yesha Council and others, um, who, 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 who showed their part of the responsibility for the fact that there is no annexation, because some of them came out against it, because the flip side of it was accepting the Trump plan and a Palestinian state, and they would not hear of it. So there was a split among the, the, the settler movement itself on the issue of annex, unilateral annexation. But now that it is sort of on the, off the table, suspended, delayed, whatever, they are asking for compensation. And there are a few ideas as to how uh, this government might compensate them that are very dangerous. Um, including maybe more esoteric to this forum, like uh, E1, uh, uh, building in E1. Uh, but even more so, uh, the chairman of the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Security Committee, uh, Hauser, uh, came up with a proposed legislation that will apply to all settlements uh, the rules that apply on giving up Israeli sovereign territory. Uh, there was a law that passed twice already, most recently in 2012, that says that uh, if Israel is to give up in, a, in the context of, of, of a deal, we, we'll give up uh, of a swap, we'll give up a sovereign territory. This can be only done uh, with, a, a, with a unique majority of 80 Knesset members, two-thirds, uh, or a national referendum. And Hauser now says, let's apply this to all settlements which is annexation by other means. If you treat every settlement as a sovereign area for the, for, for, for the one-day evacuation, uh, this is annexation in, in other means. And when I earlier mentioned 
that the Emiratis, for example, are not versed with the details, uh, they may be very well satisfied with a commitment not to annex and not realizing that the Hauser law does the same without calling it, uh, without calling a spade a spade. So the compensation that the settlers are demanding and might get uh, might create even more serious problems, uh, not more than annexation, uh, but more than we had assumed when we saw annexation being uh, suspended. And as a follow-up, uh, we have a question from Fred Lane. Uh, hi, Fred. Uh, given the existence of so many settlements as a practical matter, is a formal annexation really necessary for Israel? Doesn't a real peace agreement require an Israeli withdrawal from most of the settlements? Look, um, um, I'm always reluctant to get into the details of a permanent status agreement, a two-state agreement, and so on. Um, uh, without maps and, and specifics uh, on the screen. But let's just say the following. Um, more than 80% of all settlers live west of the security barrier. That's one. Two, the 17 uh, isolated settlements deep in Palestinian, uh, among Palestinian population, uh, which the Trump plan um, has has them staying uh, with some kind of a link to Israel as sovereign Israeli territory deep inside Palestinian, uh, uh, the state of Palestine, according to the plan. Um, uh, that, that's not a viable option, and there's nobody in the security establishment that believes that uh, any government in Israel can take responsibility for leading those, assuming there is a Palestinian state, for leaving those 17 settlements inside, deep inside Palestinian territory and hoping to defend them. Um, so, uh, according to, to, to the studies that we have conducted at Commanders uh, and some others, there is a need, if we go to a two-state solution tomorrow morning, and, and we're not, unfortunately, uh, there is a need to evacuate something like 39,000 families. It's a big number, it's a major challenge, uh, but for a country that absorbed one million Russian immigrants within in no time, uh, 39,000 families, and assuming that implementation of any agreement will be stretched over five years or 10 years, uh, that's a number that Israel can tolerate. The problem is not, is not the logistical uh, and, and the, the, the organizational, uh, but the problem is political. Can we can 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 one day there be a government in Israel that will muster the political will uh, to, to to do that? Um, that's a that's a very big question, but that's the question. It's not the question of is it doable. It is, but is it politically feasible? And that's anybody's guess. So we have time for just a couple more questions, Nimod. Uh, and I think you touched on this, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit more. Tracy Wilkinson um, asks if you foresee other Arab countries following suit in recognition and normalization. If so, who? If not, why not? Um, I, I will start with Bahrain, and, and not by accident. Um, um, as you know, Bahrain is basically a subsidiary of Saudi Arabia. Um, and when there was a threat for the stability there, then the Saudi army came in and, and restored the order 
for the uh, for the emir. Um, but I'm, 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 I start with with Bahrain because that's where the idea of what happens between Israel and the UAE started. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an effort by the administration to broker a non-belligerent agreement between Bahrain and Israel, and that was supposed to be the crown jewel uh, of the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration uh, in uh, regional progress. Um, it got stuck, and not in, uh, not in Bahrain. Uh, it got stuck in Jerusalem. I had, I had not yet been able to find out what, why. I, I suspect that the Bahraini asked more on the Palestinian issue than, uh, than the Emiratis. But anyway, it got stuck. But when the issue of annexation uh, became serious and imminent, um, the entire relevant political environment was focused on threats. The Europeans were threatening retaliation. The Arabs were threatening retaliation. The Egyptians, the Jordanians, and others were threatening retaliation. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, the Biden uh, uh, team and, and the Democrats uh, threatened the recognition uh, of it. And then somebody suggested to uh, the White House, why don't you try the Bahraini way? Tempt Netanyahu away from annexation rather than threaten him away from it. Uh, and, and luckily, Jared Kushner liked the idea and started working on it with his close friend, Yusuf el uh, and the rest is history. So Bahrain was there and then disappeared, and people say that it might come back, um, and, and I'm not sure. They will need a green light, of course, from uh, Riyadh, uh, and Riyadh is behaving more carefully on this, this particular Riyadh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman's Riyadh, is behaving more carefully on this than it did on Lebanon, on Qatar, on Yemen, on this, for some reason, they're being more careful and they want to see how the, uh, uh, what is the fallout from the Emirati experiment, which they were not party to. Um, so I, I guess that the jury is still out on, on Bahrain. Uh, Oman, uh, it's a big question whether the new leader, who is really new uh, since the passing uh, uh, of of uh, the previous uh, um, uh, leader, he, does he feel um, that he has established his credentials to the point uh, that he can follow suit? I, I don't know. I have no way of uh, of testing it. And as I mentioned earlier, you give the Sudanese. Uh, a break on the on the list of uh, terror states, and I think they're going to do it. And you give the Moroccans, and I don't think the U.S. will give the Moroccans what they <laughs> excuse me what they expect in terms of uh, Western Sahara, and and we may have that too. But my sense is the White House and Netanyahu are saying soon it's going to happen. I somehow suspect that people will wait a bit longer to see uh, if they want to be number two and at what terms. Nimal, we're, we're getting we're a little bit past time, but I have one final question, Olega Achat. 
Uh, Leora Moriel asked, do you think Bibi and Trump are planning an October surprise? By definition, if they do, then it's a surprise. I mean, um, <laughs> okay. um, I, I just think that, uh, that I'm not sure that they have anything beyond the signature ceremony. Uh, I think that they want to see attendance, even those who are not normalizing. They would like them to show up, and not just to show up, but not to send them an ambassador, but maybe a foreign minister, and hopefully more. Um, we heard that Mohammed bin Zayed doesn't want to come. Uh, he wants it at a lower profile. Uh, I'm not sure why, but that's his consideration. Uh, I, I don't know if he will... Uh, if he will be able to resist the White House pressure on this, but he'd rather have it at the lower level. Um, I don't see Netanyahu agreeing to anything but himself. I mean, he's not going to send Benny Gantz or Gabi Ashkenazi for a moment like this. So if it's Bibi, it has to be counterpart. So how are they going to square this? Uh, I don't know. The White House wanted as, so as close to November uh, uh, MBZ, MBZ wants it uh, uh, as soon as possible. The White House wants the highest level and highest attendance, and MBZ wants lower profile. How will it turn out? I have no idea. Nimrod, this has been great, as always, with you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions today, but I can assure our audience that we will bring Nimrod back for more sessions like this, and to the Thank you, Nimrod, for taking the time today to speak with us. If you want to learn more about this issue, I encourage you to check out Nimrod's new article for Israel Policy Exchange entitled Pitfalls to Avoid in the Pending UAE-Israel Agreement, which you can find on our website. Once again, I want to thank all of our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this possible. Again, if you've not yet done so, please consider making a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once more for joining us today. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, and to visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings, as well as our special virtual event, The Road Ahead. We will be hosting another video briefing next Tuesday, September 8th, back at the regular time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. So once again, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, be safe and be well. Nimrod Erev Tov. Thank you all.